are salvific dimensions of baptism. That is, when we are baptized, we encounter God's grace in a new and living way. Is it working now? I'm continuing to talk. We're good. Okay, good. Uh, We talked about how there are moral dimensions. Not only uh, has God saved me from sin, devil, and death, but he has now set me up so that now I can live my life in a new and righteous way. So there are moral dimensions to baptism. Today we'll talk about the ecclesial um, dimensions of baptism. To do that, I want to relate to you a story I read this week. I was reading some history, and I read a story told by a man named Carl something rather, Carl Spain. Carl Spain. He told a story about living in Texas in 1960. He talked to, uh, in this story, he's telling a story about uh, a white revivalist preacher that came through that small Texas town and, and preached both to the black and to the white congregations, had great success, and moved along. A few weeks later, a black evangelist came into town and, of course, only spoke to the black congregation that, that had gathered there. But as he preached, he was able to sort of water the word that was planted by the white minister several uh, weeks or months prior to that. And he had a great uh, response. There were all of these African-American uh, men, women, and children who suddenly decided they wanted to follow Jesus and they needed to receive baptism. The way that Carl tells a story, he says that the Lord forgot what time it was because at that time, the only baptistry in town was at a white Baptist church. And so the uh, black minister, so enthralled and excited and overjoyed of this great turnout that he had, all of these people who wanted to come and receive baptism, uh, he just called the church up and said, hey, can we use the baptistry? And the Lord must have moved in some heart there that received the call because they said, yes, come on over and use our baptistry, of course, in a great uh, time of segregation. It's a beautiful story, but that's not the end of it. Because outrage soon flared up. And as the baptismal service was going on, as African-American brothers and sisters were being washed in the waters of regeneration and brought into the community of God, all around this church came people from our church movement, Christian churches, churches of Christ, Presbyterians, Baptists, and Methodists in town, and violently protested. They would rather die than see an African-American use their baptistry. And the, the uproar, the violence was so intense that the police came and shut it down before everyone could receive baptism. As I dug around in this story and was digging around in some other things, I came across this very interesting picture this week. What a fascinating image, isn't it? Fascinating image. This is really safe, right? Because our society has now decided that racism is wrong. And so even those of us who may hide some tendencies will never say, oh, this is okay, right? Everyone here is going to say something like, this is horrific and this is terrible. But why is it horrific and terrible? So we we might look at this and say, what's happening here seems to be that, let's put it this way. What were all of these people, this is not a picture from that day, but obviously it comports well to that day. 
all of those Christians who were around that church, outraged and rioting that black people were using a white baptistry, was the baptistry, was baptism the issue? No, baptism wasn't the issue for them. In fact, if all of those black people had just gone down to the river, or had their own baptistry, or maybe visited a public pool, or used a bathtub, or anything else, everyone would have been okay. In fact, you could imagine a situation where these, even these people right here could be standing around and say, oh, did you hear there's a great revival at the, Baptist, or at the black church downtown? A bunch of people were baptized. You could imagine these people saying, oh, well, that's very nice, right? That's very nice. They were baptized, They've now received Jesus. Now they've had their sins forgiven. Now they too might go to heaven when they die. See, for for them, baptism wasn't the issue at all. For the Bible, though, baptism is the entire issue. The entire issue. Because what we should be horrified at this picture of all of the things, there's lots to be horrified about, I understand that. But one of the things that we should be horrified about as we think about this instance is that all of these white people have no idea what baptism does. Somebody has sold them something that is completely false. Because when Paul talks about baptism... He has something like this in mind. You can turn your Bibles if you'd like to. 1 Corinthians is where we'll be. Um, page 959, if you want to kind of double check me. I, I love, love that. Uh, I'll give it to you here, though, so you can see it this way as well. Paul says this when he talks about baptism. He says, for just as the body is one and has many members... And all of the members of our human body, right, your physical body, you have all kinds of parts of your body. And though there are many, there's but one Jordan, right? So it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. We might say whether black or white, we might Say, whether American or Chinese, we, we could use any, right? This, this is meant to capture all of the dichotomies we create, all of the ways we create a system or a word or a thought or a way of life that pits me against them. This passage says, in baptism, what used to be me and what used to be them has now become us. In baptism, we were given one spirit, one baptism. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of that one spirit. And thus now the body, that is Christ's body, that th- those who call themselves Christians, those who belong to Jesus, those who have experienced his spirit, those who have been washed in the waters of baptism, now we who were many are now one. Now the larger context of 1 Corinthians, in fact, even as Eric brought up earlier today, we didn't plan this, but it works quite well, um, is a conflict between groups of people, particularly Jews and Gentiles. And we don't need to belabor that point, but just keep in your mind that what Paul is referencing here is a church that is experiencing divisions along racial lines. Uh, We could pick any line that you want, but this is what they are reeling with. And part of their problem is is not that they're fighting about power and control. That is what they're doing. But you'll notice that when Paul speaks to them, he doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't call them to remember Jesus who, who washed people's feet, demonstrating that cruciformed power comes from the ground up. 
He doesn't say, well, you shouldn't try to be in charge of one another or Lord. No, he says, remember your baptism. There's something far more fundamental that you guys are forgetting. Yes, you're arguing about power. You're arguing about control. You're arguing about popularity. You're arguing about who's best. You're arguing about race. You're arguing about lots of different things. But somewhere along the line, it was way back here where God fixed that problem. He already described to you what happened. It happened there in baptism. They have forgotten their baptism. And we often do this too, primarily, I think, because we live in a culture that is deeply individualized, right? We are deeply individualized. Everything about the way we even conceive of the world is built on me, and every one of you is a me. We assume our priority and our primacy of the individual's choice. And can I give you an example that really cracked me up from this week? My friend uh, sent me a text. He is, uh, uh, we went to seminary together. Um, his, his, his wife is a minister, so he's really deeply connected to the church and to the other things. And so he's a Christian but working in a secular school. And he sent me this text <laughs> about it, this eighth grader who thinks he's edgy. <laughs> This is what this eighth grader told us. I, I'm an atheist, but like only for me? Because I, I think if a person is a Christian and believes in afterlife, they get it. If a person believes in nirvana, they get it. <laughs> so Jeff goes, I shouldn't have said his name. Strike that from the internets. Uh, he says, so like a universalist? Yeah, but I'm an atheist. <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it cracked me up. What cracks me up about this text are two things. The first thing is that there is built into this eighth grader a belief that he needs to figure religion out. Isn't that interesting? I, as an eighth grader, need to figure out what I believe about God. That's really interesting. But secondly, how incoherent this answer is, right? Imagine a universe that he describes here, a godless universe that somehow knows how to sort people out based on their religious preferences after death. How does that work? (laughs) But it's so very funny because I run into people who have this perspective all the time. Not necessarily this particular perspective, but we're all fairly well situated into thinking what we think about religion and pretty well situated to allow other people to think what they want about religion as well, right? Because it is individual. It is individualized. I experienced, I think many of you have told this story before, but I experienced this when I was working at a daycare. I told some kids, they were asking about what it means to be a Christian. How do I know if I'm a Christian? One of my answers was, well, part of it is, you know, going to church. And I got pulled into the director's office the next day and said, well, you can't tell people they got to go to church. I was like, you're a Christian daycare, Right? It's run by a church. I'm telling people to go to your church. And you're still telling me, don't do that. Why? Because a mom called in and her opinion about religion is you didn't need a church. You just needed your Bible and Jesus. Maybe. We live in this culture. This is the water we swim in. And so... What happens is we experience baptism in that same water, from that same perspective. So what is baptism to people? What is baptism to people? It is an individual experience where I transact with God for my salvation. Right? But baptism in and of itself is always communal. It is never an individual experience. You notice that baptism always assumes at least two people, doesn't it? 
Somebody has got to baptize you. It is always a part of something larger than just Jordan and God. It is always a part of the people of God. We always intend or understand that baptism by definition requires community. And even if you're a kind of person who says, well, I just need my Bible. Well, where did you get that? Because somebody wrote down the stories and somebody collected the stories and some churches gathered together around those stories and for thousands of years passed on those stories and then translated those stories into new languages and then published them into new books so that you could have a Bible in your hand. Everything about your faith, even the Bible that you hold so dear, screams God's people and the need for all of us to be a part of God's People. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians. Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 5, we'll start here. It says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Because there is one body and there is one spirit, just as you were called into one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And in this you can see the theology that undergirds Paul's description of baptism. That we are drawn together into oneness, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one body, one people, one God and Father over all who is in all and through all. And so Paul calls upon this church to remember, as he says in chapter 2 verse 12, to remember that you were once separated from Christ. And that's the message that a lot of evangelists, that if you've ever been to church or gone to a VBS or been to a revival or something, someone at some point, I hope, if not, let me do it now, says, have you ever gotten right with Christ? Have you ever gotten your life right with God? And we're used to that. We understand that. That makes a lot of sense to us. It is very built into our individual ideas and experience. But Paul doesn't stop there. He says, once you were separated from God, once you were separated from Christ, but also, and just as bad as that, you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were a stranger to God's covenants and to his promises. You had no hope, and you were without God in the world. This is a big deal. Not only were you without God, he says here, but you were also without God's people. To be without God is to be without God's people. To be without God is to be without God's people and to be without his promises and his hope and his covenant. And all of it is wrapped together into one moment. Do you not know when you were baptized, you became more than you are? Do you not know that when you were baptized, you became as part of something way bigger than you are? So massive, so huge, it spanned the entire earth and all of the ages before us and all of the ages after us. In baptism, you became a part of the body of Christ. We were once on our own, without hope, without God's people, without God, without promise, without purpose, without meaning. We were alone and afloat on our own, but suddenly, suddenly there was something different 
when we lived in the passions of our desires, carrying out the desires of our body and our mind, that's how we lived. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together. Notice that? Not alive alone, not alive by yourself, not alive when you came up out of the waters. Alive together. By grace you have been saved. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. And he has made us both one and has broken down the divide, the fle- in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, abolishing the law and commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we have both have access in one spirit to the Father, so that you are now... No longer strangers and aliens, right? You see kind of the switch earlier. We were separated from God, separated from his people, separated from the covenant and the promises. But now we who are far off, because you and I were not born into Israel. We weren't born Jewish. We don't bear the marks on our body. We don't bear the DNA in our code, right? And so we who are far off, separated from God in Jesus Christ, have now been brought near. And notice the good news part of this. So we were aliens and strangers, but now we're citizens. Now we're saints with the members of the household of God. I know that was a lot of Bible reading right there. But I wanted you to kind of see the whole shape of this narrative so that we can see that as Paul is describing the power of salvation, as he's describing what it looks like to be alive in Christ, everything that he has said relates also to the people of God and our need, our desperate need for one another. When does this happen? When do we become saints? When do we become the body? When do we become the family? When do we become the new man? When do we become the citizenry? When we step into the waters of baptism, it is though you are passing through. You remember this story of the Red Sea? The Israelites pass through the waters and they end up in, in the next place on their way to the promised land. That is the same thing that is true for us. That same story told is the same story that's told with every baptism. You pass through those waters of baptism. You end up on the other side with the people of God. And now we are on the journey home. We're on the journey to the promised land. And the great and powerful and great news of it is that journey is not just by yourself. By brothers and sisters who will walk next to you and strive with you and be with you. But we cannot forget the power of baptism in this sense because we have that dual problem. Not only do we have individualism, that is the priority of personal choice, but we also have consumerism, which is something you've probably heard a fair amount about because we live in a consumeristic culture. And consumerism basically melds itself to individualism so that I as the person, as the individual, now recognize the world is, as a whole as something that offers goods and services to me. I see this all the time. I deal with this every day. Every time I get a text, a phone call, a tweet, a message, a direct message, an email. Did I make them all? I can't remember if I've hit them all yet. Where somebody says, 
you know what our church really needs? You know what I hear back? You know what I'd really like for you to make for me? Because that's what you're saying to me. People want to start a ministry come and they say, I think our church needs this and I'm ready to take it on. But I don't get messages like that. I get messages that say, you know what's wrong with this church? You know, this church isn't meeting my needs anymore. That is this, is it not? Right? And so what we hear then from our culture, and it sort of gets into us and roots into us and begins to shape the way that we see ourselves and how we see baptism and how we see the world. So what does baptism become? Baptism becomes this moment where I have a transaction with God. God forgives my sins, and I say, I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to follow you. And then the church steps in, and we become really important too. We become really important because we become the agent by which God gives you goods and services so that your faith with him can continue on, right? That's how most people perceive the church. And that is 100% not what ODCC is here to do. If you're here for that, see yourselves out because we will not meet your needs. We exist to bring glory to God. And we bring glory to God when we draw close together and we love each other deeply and really and we tell other people about God's love. The church is the organic, living body of Christ. When you stepped into those waters of baptism, everything that divided you from someone else became irrelevant. I said this a few weeks ago, quoting a famous theologian, says that Jesus is Lord and everything else is bullcrap. I mean it. It's true, right? Everything became a loss to Paul. I was a Jew. I was a Roman. I was a Pharisee. I was rising in the ranks. I was a rock star. I was a Jew among Jews, he says, and then I got baptized and none of that meant anything. And the only thing that mattered was declaring the love of Jesus with every fiber and every moment of my being. And the way that I did that, he says, is by plugging in and loving the body of Christ. Because I suddenly realized I was not alone. I suddenly realized I was tied to something larger and bigger and more powerful and prominent than myself. And every time you remember your baptism, you are called to remember the people of God. I am called to remember the most imperfect church ever to dwell on the face of this sphere, Greenville Church of Christ. The most imperfect church. And I remember the most imperfect people preaching to me the most perfect gospel. And what you experience every time you come to a church is exactly that, is it not? The most imperfect people trying to do our best to share the love of God. That is what this is all about. That's the insidiousness of that story I told you at the beginning. What's insidious about that story is we think it's about racism. No, it's about something more deep than that. It's that nobody even reckoned with the power of baptism. Because in the power of baptism, race means nothing. It's gone, it's washed away, you belong to the body of Christ. Something more fundamental is at work. We have not reckoned with the power of baptism to destroy the walls that divide us and to call us to live lives of compassion and love. The best way I thought to maybe draw this illustration together 
All right, Mark, can you help me out? So this is 50 feet of rope. If you take 50 feet of rope and you kind of do some rough math, because again, I'm a theologian, not a mathematician. If you take that roughly, this would be about 100 years right here of the 5,000 years of church scriptural history we have. And what happens in baptism is when you are baptized, you become one of the threads, right? These many threads that are brought together, twisted together, sometimes forced together, sorry. (laughs) Forced together to create something that is of such immense use that you can buy it even on Amazon and they'll ship it overnight. (laughs) Right? But what I love about thinking about the greatness of God in my place and your place in his people through baptism is not that I am one of these many hundreds or thousands of threads that has now been woven together in this one moment, in this one span of history, but that if I had the perspective to look back, I could see that all of these are names and faces and people who have carried on the gospel imperfectly, passing it on over generation after generation, that all of this is what belongs to me and what all of this belongs to you. That in baptism we suddenly realize we are no longer alone because you belong to the church and the church belongs to you. And it's done so for thousands of years and we just, I don't have the, enough budget to buy enough rope to create eternity up here in coils of rope to, just, to demonstrate how big and thick and long and great is God's mercy in tying us into his people, his promise, his history, his story. But as you walk past this, this morning you can go ahead and set it down, Mark. As you walk past this rope this morning, as you sort of begin to leave, I want you to use it as a moment to remember your baptism. To look at it and to recognize that you are one of the many threads that God has called by his grace. A thread that was far off, that was alone, that's kind of floating. But he has moved it now and merged it and, 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 and melded you into his people, woven you together that you might be a part of his long story of grace and mercy and forgiveness. That as you leave this place, and I see all of your beautiful faces, I get to kind of see all of you in one big, one big shot, and you don't get to see that, but as you leave this place and look at all the faces, even some of the ones that you've been forced to be next to, remember that God has not left you alone, but he's loved you. In fact, he loved you so much, he didn't make that. That sounds miserable. That sounds like you're alone on Facebook raging in your, in your, in your basement all the time. That, that's terrible. Instead, God has had so much more mercy, so much more grace, that he confronts the, the vapidity of our culture and says individualism is bunk. Consumerism is vapor. You are called to more than this. You are called to purpose and power and privilege and All of that is met here as we gather together and work through our differences and learn how to love and 
struggle with grace and patience and growth, remember your baptism because in your baptism, you stopped being just one person on a journey we call life and you became a part of something that spans eternity. Something so big that no one can count because by his blood, Jesus has called forth people from every tribe and nation and we can't make the mistake that we started with we can't make the mistake of thinking baptism is just about me and God because we saw the horrible outcome of missing that and may we never make such a horrific mistake again we will only do that if we recognize that in baptism We break down the walls that in his flesh, Jesus broke down everything that divided us and now calls us all together to one new humanity. Let's stand and sing our praises to him. If you have a decision that you need to make today, maybe it's to be baptized, maybe it's to remember your baptism again, I I will be down front. We'd be happy to talk with you. Our elders will be out back there. They would be happy to talk and pray with you. Remember your baptism today.